0: We've got a bunch of data that have allowed us to bust a few myths and open a few questions and make people think more deeply about these things.
1: It's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and organization for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm Maddie Stratton, and I'm surprised I didn't stumble over that intro after how long it's been. I'm really excited to be coming back with a new episode for this 2023 brand new year, brand new season of Arrested DevOps. And we're going to be talking about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. But before we dig into that, Let's hear a word from our sponsors. Collecting compliance evidence shouldn't involve spreadsheets and scavenger hunts. With automated controls and over 75 integrations, Drada automates the process without needing to be an expert. Drada supports 14 frameworks including SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and ISO 27001. Companies like Notion and Lemonade have shared how Drata simplifies audits through automated evidence collection. Don't let audits slow down your dev cycle. Request a demo today and get 10% off along with waived implementation fees at drada.com slash partner slash arrested devops. So if you have been listening to ADO for a while or just listening to me, which can be both in the same, you'll know that the area of resilience and resilience engineering and incident response and incidents and all of that is something very fascinating to me. And I've spent a lot of time listening and learning and even running my own mouth about it. When the opportunity came up to have two, two of my favorite experts in the area who've done a whole bunch of research recently and want to share it, to have them come on the show, I pretty much did the equivalent of the shut up and take my money, except... There's no money part. So I'm really excited to be joined by Casey Rosenthal and Courtney Nash. Casey, you want to introduce yourself real quick to our listeners?
2: Sure. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm generally known as the chaos engineering person. I wrote the definition with my team at Netflix that I built and managed there. I started the conferences, the chaos community broadcast. I wrote the book on it, stuff like that. And now I'm the CEO of a company
1: called Verica. Awesome. And then Courtney, I can't imagine anyone in our audience doesn't know who you are, but just in case, or maybe maybe they want a refresher.
0: Uh, I'm Courtney Nash. I may be known to most people as the former chair of the Velocity Conference. I worked for O'Reilly Media for a long time. Uh, I'd worked at Amazon and Microsoft before that. So I've been around a few other startups. And uh, Casey finally convinced me that I was crazy enough, uh, foolish enough. Because really, to come work for him. Um, Wise enough. (laughs) Wise enough. Very wise. Uh, But I am now in a research role at Verica. And along the way, I also fell down the rabbit hole of really becoming interested in safety, resilience. um, In particular, given my academic background, role of humans and human performance in how we handle these things. And then, so a couple years ago, we started this thing called The Void which is the Verica Open Incident Database. And that's what we're here to talk about today.
2: Can I just interject? Courtney also has the best job title.
0: Oh, that's true. forget this. (laughs) I am a researcher, but technically I am, I think the world's only internet incident librarian.
1: Incident librarian. I love it. It's uh, not to go off on that tangent, but I know there's been a lot of conversation around how more organizations should have Software library, you know, people who keep all that knowledge, but you're keeping it for the incidents for the whole world. No those uh, no no small undertakings. So tell us a little bit about the void before we talk about the report that you published. Yeah. But what really is this open incident database? What's it all about?
0: So it started out of the research, some of the early product research work I was doing for Verica. We have a product that's sort of illusion of the chaos engineering work that that Casey had done. And the sort of two key technologies that, that we were focused on initially are Kubernetes and Kafka, because as we all know, they're perfect and not complex <laughs> and never cause anyone any problems. So I was looking for non-standard information, if you will, on on what we know about that, right? So not marketing materials or tech specs or whatever, but like, how are these things actually falling down in the wild? And so I found various incident reports. There was, uh, Lou had this great little GitHub repo, AF, And so there were a few of these things out there. And so I started collecting incident reports because they were an interesting source of information about this. Highly variable amounts of information, which we obviously can get into. And so I started finding these for Kafka. And then because I'm me, I couldn't stop. And I would end up like reading these things all day. And <laughs> And I put some feelers out to a variety of different folks. And all of a sudden I had like thousand of these. And we started talking to people about it. And the general consensus was, holy shit. Uh, also, thank you. <laughs> and, and we have more of that. And so it sort of evolved into this database. And we started collecting metadata on all of that. And that's where the void emerged from in, in 2020, late 2020. So we did our initial report on that in 2021. And we just released the second one more recently. And that's, that's, so we can talk about some of those, the details of the report, but the database itself, it's online. We'll have the link in the show notes and everything. Anybody can go and poke around. And I think the key thing, there's a couple of key things about it. One is that it's, when we say incident reports to this audience, probably people have a very specific idea of what that is, right? Like like a postmortem review or something written by a company. And granted, there are definitely a lot of those in there, but we wanted to take sort of a broader view of incidents because I have a few chips on my shoulder <laughs> that I wanted to have some data uh, to either prove or disprove. And so we have everything from Detailed post mortem reports to status page updates to tweets to media articles like everything that you can imagine. If somebody talked about a website or a service falling over, that's in there because I, I really believe that there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about software incidents out in the world just amongst our industry. And I want to be able to start to tackle some of those things. Secondly, we collect a lot of metadata on those incident reports. So things like Obviously, we get the company and details around how it's described and all of that. But we also, if it's available, collect how long that organization said that incident lasted for, and if they had any kind of severity associated with it, whether they used a particular methodology to all that. So we have a bunch of data that we've never had before about incidents. And that's what's really relevant here, because there's we talk about incidents in a lot of specific ways, especially from a DevOps lens, right? there's a lot of us who've been able to wanted to say like, oh duration of an incident doesn't really mean what you think it means or we talk a lot about like root cause analysis is bad but why we've never had any data before about these things and so that's i think what's the most powerful about this is instead of us talking in the abstract which annoyingly in our industry doesn't get you very far <laughs> or sometimes gets you too far <laughs> uh, we've got a bunch of data that have allowed us to bust a few myths and open a few questions, and people think more deeply about these things.
1: And that's a couple of things, like you said, you came in with, you've got, this is an opportunity to to expunge some chips from your shoulder or launch those chips into the greater discourse, maybe. And I know I felt that when I was at PagerDuty, I always felt like we had this opportunity, again, as for customers, what could you look at? What could you see? And it's interesting as I, I think what's nice is as you've gone and done this collection, because a lot of times people feel like they don't want to talk about this stuff because you're bringing up this thing that is what is perceived as a failure. And I think especially around security incidents it's something that I've, and I'm curious. That's an area that you're, you're talking about. I've always found a challenge with wanting to talk to an organization and get good practices and patterns and things from their security incidents. But that's something that's usually perceived as like, we absolutely cannot talk about that in public because it's scary. And I feel like we probably felt that when we're having that conversation on the operational side 10 years ago was the same thing. It's, Oh no, if we talk about this failure, then people are going to want to sue us because we had a downtime or then people will know our infrastructure and they can hack us because they know we're running this version of Cassandra or whatnot. And it seems like we got over that. So I guess number one, do you, f- are you seeing people being more transparent about security incidents? And from your incident, are you like you have this big collection of incident Mm -hmm. reports? How do security incidents play into Void?
0: So the, the focus that we had largely for the Void was more around what we might call availability incidents, right? Because that didn't exist. There's a lot of security breach databases out there, right? you the DVIR and you've got a bunch of these things that are already, either they're tracking these things. There's a ton of data. Um, so we don't, we didn't focus on that in terms of what we've been collecting. There are some, they're mostly DDoS type security incidents, if you would say. So they still have some kind of an availability impact and they bring it and they bring it down. Uh, and so I would, but I would say I'm pretty, I know a bunch of folks in that industry. I still watch a lot of that. I think that the mentality that we feel like we've adopted somewhat in the sort of DevOps space is still a long ways away um, when it comes to security incidents. And I think it is, there's so much to unpack there, right? Like culturally adversarial stuff. Like I I can understand why people have that perspective, uh, but I, the general mantra of the void is that we need to share this kind of information because it's the only way that we all collectively are going to get better at this. We have so much commoditized knowledge amongst individuals and in organizations that just tends to move around and we're, we don't share that outwardly. And the analogy that I use often, which may be more familiar to folks also as DevOps or if you're a safety nerd type of person, is the airline industry in the 90s in the United States in particular was in a really bad state. The safety rating across all the airlines was terrible. Like Faith and perception in of airline safety was. Really bad and didn't come from regulation to change the tide of that. Like the initial push to change that came from the people operating the planes themselves, right? So the pilots, and then eventually other folks came on board, even the air traffic controllers and ground people and all that. But pilots around each other and were like, we don't talk to each other about what's happening. I don't care if you work for JetBlue and I work for American or whatever. I should actually have like a remembrance of 90s airlines because some of them are so long gone. Ah, TWA,
1: Pan Am. I don't think Pan Am was still around in the 90s.
0: But they started sharing their incidents with each other. Uh, Eventually, a sort of more formalized database arose out of that. And regulation certainly came more into play over time. But that effort is sort of known for helping to raise collective understanding of similar problems across carriers and operators that those folks were having. And... Uh, I don't even want to bring up what's currently happening. It's not so much a safety thing, but our airline industry is going through its own turmoils currently. But I I think from a safety standpoint, that was really an impressive effort. And it was a ground, the ground up from the practitioner standpoint. And I think they were all willing to set aside the competitive and other kinds of of things. And I I believe that is possible in our industry and also necessary. I think it will take longer on the security side of things. Uh, Even in, Within liability, SRE, that type of thing, I still get asked by people all the time, like, this is great, but my lawyers will never let us share. I think it's easy in our bubble to feel like, oh, we're all really aware of this. We know what's going on, but I talked about the research last year at SRECon and I had multiple people, multiple people come up to me and say like, no way. I work for a bank or I work for a, and we're never, like never going to happen. And I don't believe that. I believe that it's entirely possible, but I also tell people that it's possible that it will come because you are regulated to do so, which is it's interesting
1: um, that. Regulation for good <laughs> for, or, for us instead of against us, I shouldn't I say for good, but yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> think it's going to work for us
0: <laughs> right. So what's come out of the Southwest Airlines thing, right? is the call to regulate software and whatnot for, for these airlines when that was not really what was causing that problem in the first place, right? That was very much an organizational cultural decades long cluster, so I think it's incumbent on us to work on this as hard as we can before those types of forces are imposed. Because not only will they not work, but they will inevitably uh, wreak havoc on the people at that sharp end, right? Folks who have to build, maintain, and operate, and keep track of all those things in these systems, where the burden is going to still land, right? So, I think that's really a good point
1: about... Driving it towards there, and it's a conversation that to to make more terrible analogies, actually not more. It sounds like I said your analogy was terrible. Mine will be terrible, or maybe will be a stretch. Conversation we have about like where Devrel fits into an organization. one of the things I've been telling people is say you pick the capitalism you're willing to do, so you don't have to do the capitalism you don't want to do. And what I mean by that is if you are in an organization and you don't volunteer how you're creating the value in the way that's understood, a way of creating value will be assigned to you, and The way that I say it's like I have – my dogs are working dogs. They're Australian shepherds, right? And so the thing with a working breed is you have to give them a job because if you don't give them a job, they will find a job. And you will not like the job that they find. And similarly, I so I think that's an a good point, which is the more that we can drive this as practitioners and driving the industry, it will help fill that gap so that the regulation doesn't see that as a gap that has to be filled because we're like, wait, we have an answer. We already fixed it. And – Depending if, on how cynical we're feeling today, maybe. <laughs>
2: yeah. If uh, if the job that you gave your dogs isn't being adorable, then that's a crime. So <laughs> that on my but uh, yeah, the, I think that's really the. And Courtney and I are come at it from uh, different areas of concern. The regulation is really like my personal nightmare. I think that would ruin software engineering as a field. Uh, and you can imagine an SRE. What, it, what an availability compliance framework would look like if, if you want to share some nightmares. Uh, but really the theme, the biggest impact that I think the void can have long-term in the industry is helping us redefine value of availability work, um, be it incident analysis, incident response, um, proactive stuff like chaos engineering or continuous verification. Because right now, so like the first couple of reports, I mentioned myth busting. They focus on like, okay, we're, the things we're trying to measure right now are just, they're just not good things to measure. And i love for Courtney to dive into that. They're just bad. Uh, and so that part of that is, like, okay, let's prove that's bad. But then once we do that, let's start building up you know, options that are good to replace those with. And that's probably not gonna look like Um, uh, objective uh, metrics or statistical methods. It's probably going to be qualitative stuff, uh, which is good. A lot of industries operate that way, but it's a completely different mindset from how we currently operate when we uh, allocate resources towards things like availability or system safety and really availability and security are two sides of the same coin with respect to system safety.
1: Yeah, I want to ask about some of these. I start with some of the things that you've seen that were, again, you say, came out of the report, we learned this, and then dig into the challenge of actually affecting that change when you're talking about something that's a radical mindset shift, especially when you're really asking from that from leadership. And I think one of the challenges, not to cut spoiler alert to it, is that, let's be honest, like, What's the average lifespan of an org chart in a company, right? 18 months. So you're going to, maybe you do all this work to get your CIO to understand it. And then he's peace out. And now you got Ms. New CIO who maybe came from a whole way and you're trying to fundamentally say this is a completely different way about thinking about the business of software. I think there's a reason that people get exhausted because we've been doing this over and over again. But, but let's start optimistically by saying what's wrong. (laughs) That we can agree about, but I know one of the things that comes up is the the big bugbear of MTTR, so mean time to resolution, which folks love this metric because yep. I assume mostly because it makes sense and it Whoa. feels cut and dry. It's like it it's a number, and that number feels should go down.
0: Great, it yeah. feels great, right? So um, why does
1: it really hmm. suck?
0: Okay, so <laughs> we'll start uh, with that. <laughs> let's let's go back in time too, because technology or as an industry has a really sometimes amazing capacity to borrow ideas metaphors tactics techniques from other industries right um and but we don't always think that through enough right so mttr mean time to resolve mean time to remediate what have you comes from physical manufacturing like that's actually where it came out of right so like widget widgets on a conveyor belt coming out, going to get built together into a larger thing full of widgets. And they're made in a very specific way. And they are made out of physical materials that have very properties and those things degrade and wear over time. And so you can have the meantime to remediate a a wear and tear on one of those pieces should be a pretty consistent thing that has like a very normal distribution to it. And like, you should be able to like add that into your workflow and factor that in when things come in for repairs and all of that. Okay. That's where MTTR came from. In case you haven't noticed, modern software is nothing like that. (laughs) Right. It used to be. So entertainingly it kinds to be right. Like we had, we made some widgets and they got strung together and you could predict what the widget was supposed to do and test them. And then you shipped it on a CD. Um, our mindset is still there, but our practices and everything have evolved so significantly. So in the complex distributed software world, things don't fail like that, right? They don't fail predictably. You don't understand even the causes or the reasons or the contributing factors to those things, but we still expect them to behave in a way that you can have a measurement like MTR. And so we chose that as a reliability metric, even before I. It's, it was a reliability metric for software, even before Dora and Accelerate became a thing, right? So it's like, I think sometimes people are like, why are you picking on Dora? And I'm like, I'm not. They just picked the thing that everybody else had already picked. Just Nobody had looked at it along the way. And then you go and you look at the underlying data, which certain companies you've mentioned have, but don't necessarily publish or let anyone else look at, right? So here we have them. We finally have these distribution of duration data from incidents from software companies. And they don't look like something that you can take an average of at all. So if everybody's familiar with the you know spell curve, right? That's where your mean is straight in the middle. And then you have standard deviations off the side. And if you took statistics classes, you learned about all the fun and fancy things you can do with that. Our incident data don't look like that. They're skewed, right? Which means that there's a big, huge chunk of them that are under an hour or two hours. So there's a big bump up here and then there's just this long fall off and a nice big tail. You can't take averages of that. It's just garbage. And so that alone should have been the argument, in my opinion, but not all of us were like stats nerds in college, right? So... Along the way, an engineer from Google, he did a really cool O'Reilly report on this. And I was like, when I saw his data, I was like, those data look like my... Holy crap. Somebody else has actually looked at this. He looked at Google incidents and then scraped a bunch of incidents we have now in the void. But the, all those incident data weren't really published along with the report. We just saw the analysis. He ran a bunch of Monte Carlo simulations, right? So I don't know if people are familiar with Monte Carlo, but it's like an A-B test. I think everybody in software knows what an A-B test is, right? You take your production data coming in, you change the buy now button to blue and you see more people when it's blue click than when it's green. That's an AB test. We test. He just did that with all those duration data and he made some of the durations shorter. Like he made your incidents resolve quicker and then ran a bunch of simulations of taking the average of those and it was just a mess. We did the same thing with our data finally that we had in the last year exact same results. So a really nice empirical statistical demonstration that trying to take averages of incident durations gives you junk. Uh, We're trying to tell people now with the data that they've been using, like relying on, you can't rely on this as a measure of reliability, which is super ironic. Um, And we're starting to see subtraction with that. Like people look at that and they, I get two responses. One is, Oh shit. And the other one is, oh, shit, but I'm going to fight you on it. (laughs) Mm. It's so ingrained, right? It feels, if people say that, they can't argue with the math, but it, I'm like, what? It feels, you know, like, yeah, It's it's rough. How intuitively pleasant that number seems. But if you stop and look at the systems that we're taking those data from, and then what those underlying data look like, then you're like, oh, okay, there really is, there is no spoon right? This particular source of metrics for our systems, we should just retire it and look at other things. But it's very hard because people are like, they're incentivized to report this stuff. And the
1: time horizon is shorter than what you would think. If you're actually trying to increase reliability, you're looking at a longer time horizon. But usually, I think this is looked at within the context of a quarter which is to basically say, hey, does the CIO get their bonus this quarter? Or does the head of support get their bonus? And so when you look at it in that context, it's not a metric around increasing reliability. It's a metric in reporting performance of the people, which it's not good at that either, but it sounds like it makes sense. It's the closest thing you can do to put a Nagios counter on your people because theoretically people are restoring service. And it's... It goes back to, I think, that conversation, if you're going to dig into this, is like, what are you using it for?
0: What decision are you making based on those data? And if you can't actually do anything differently, if your MTTR goes up or your MTTR goes down, what would you do? Go and you look at your incidents, right? Actually, nobody looks at it if their MTR gets better.
1: Yeah. But you might <laughs> want to. move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: But you can't even trust it. But the answer is either way, you've got to go look at what's happening in the system and the people operating it. So stop running around chasing your tail, collecting data that don't tell you anything, and go get data or information that can actually help you understand what's happening in your systems, which will help you start to try to improve the reliability of those systems
2: yeah just to reiterate the, the layers there because uh, you started to poke at, at this, like the just flat out the statistics is wrong, right? Like we, we've got the simulations to show that a decrease in uh, in response time can still statistically move the MTTR up. So like your, your numbers are lying. Um, but also that's ignoring the fact that the data coming in is garbage. Uh, the methods for running uh, uh, how long an incident actually takes are fraught, let's say, um, and, and then there are uh, other problems with the uh, the fact that you're even going about this type of exercise. And uh, yeah, the accuracy of the data, because you started to touch on this, you would need more uh, data points. Than Google has in order to accurately, with any statistical certainty, even report on MTTR if it was the right model, which it isn't. So, the further you go down that path, the more just wrong you run into. So that's why we really just kind of like just a bad statistic. It just needs to be burned.
1: So when we think about that, agreeing, and I think again, I said I, I feel like a lot of this. And Courtney, you said people either are like, "Oh shit," or "Oh shit, I'm going to fight you." And I imagine that "Oh shit, I'm going to fight you" probably does not come at the sharp end as much because I think. Oh I mean, no, Tell me does. if I'm wrong. No, oh, no. probably maybe oh, no. some of that, but okay. Yeah. No, no.
0: Oh yeah, no, it's both. It's both. That's what's so fascinating about how uh, this belief in this metric is right. So Casey's talk. Casey alluded to this at the beginning, so I'll just I'll get to it now our entire industry is obsessed with being data-driven, right? We're obsessed with metrics and numbers. Like you can't, if you can't measure it, you can't move it, right? Like all of this Wharton business then, and then infuse that with like technology, like we can measure things down to the millisecond of the da-da-da-da, right? I come from a like psychology, cognitive neuroscience background. So I realized there was no spoon in how people and systems interact like a long time ago, But I also believe and know that you can collect data about human behavior that's still data, right? But it's just not the kind that we um, lionize (laughs) or invest in or believe in our industry. Um, But there's a whole set of other industries that look at human performance and how do you measure how humans work and how humans cooperate and how they communicate and what that tells you about your organization and your systems. And we need to, if we care deeply about the reliability and the impact of these things that we're building, we need to invest in those kinds of capabilities, those kinds of data collection and analysis and qualitative kind of work that almost no one is doing as of yet. How
1: much of this, and again, this lionization of MTTR and similar metrics, I'm wondering, comes back from the decades of siloization of IT, where... If you think about it, let's take a step back and say I'm not even inside the organization. If I'm a solution provider, I'm providing a service to you. Like so much of that is is built in that way. Whereas if IT is the cost center, the way that you're saying I'm providing the service to this feature team, things like MTTR are things that are baked into my OLA into my way of providing that because I have to give a I have to give a number to show you that I'm doing the things that we agreed to do. And then that gets, and because it, like you said, it's so pervasive into that's just the way that we reason about tech in an enterprise is you have to have these things because that's the only way that people will understand it. And you go back to how much of that do you challenge to say, do you have to do that? And it still goes back to any metric you put that has anything tied to compensation is completely even less useful. I just want to give an example. I, when I was doing, I would be giving workshops in incident command and incident response. And one of the things we talk about is say, during an incident, you don't litigate severity, right? It's not the time to argue about, oh, is this a sev one? It's whatever, let's just solve the problem. And I would give these workshops and talk to people. And afterwards, people would come and say, hey, this is the biggest problem we have in our company. Like when we're incidents, we spend all this time on working towards what I call mean time to innocence, right? And I say, how does your tech leadership measure reliability of your system. How many Sev1s did we have? So then your main job in life is to prove that it wasn't a Sev1 because that's how your boss's boss knows that you're good. And I think MTTR is a not want to say a proxy, but is an example of that because that's a thing that seven layers up the food chain, they could just look at this number on a graph and understand what it means. And so I think that's one of the things I'm interested to know. Like, How do we Maybe it's like one of the things that's almost, uh, not turn it political, but like we're waiting for kind of all the old politicians to die off and retire out so that we have maybe people who understand technology making our laws. Is some of that just a matter of we need to like, as people like kind of progress, uh, folks who have been doing this work this way get into more leadership positions, do people understand it better? Because this is changing, challenging the entire way that IT has been thought about. For decades. That's hard. So, th-
2: Yeah, th- and there's a great framework to think about why that's r- the wrong model for the work that we do, uh, which is comes from outside of software, where people who study organizations refer to software as the bureaucratic profession. Now, th- so we, we just wholeheartedly bought this from manufacturing, going back to uh, scientific method, and uh, Ford in the 1912s. Uh, in is 1912s. that
0: Casey that... Taylorism is a corporate disease that we haven't developed a vaccine for yet.
2: <laughs> you haven't developed a vaccine yet for Taylorism, and so this, this is no industry. As, a, as in, I'm making a generality about software engineering, but no industry has done a better job of instantiating the ideal bureaucracy, right? So, if you're a software engineer, you've got a, a person manager, a project manager, a product manager, a tech lead, an architect. All of those roles exist to take responsibility of your expertise away from you, which makes complete sense if you're building widgets on an assembly line, like Courtney was saying, in a manufacturing world, because you don't want anybody messing up the the cast of some piece that has to work perfectly with other physical pieces. It is exactly the wrong model if you believe that what you're doing is knowledge work. So if you view software engineering as knowledge work, then the standard organizational layout that we have for software engineering at most companies that do software engineering is just wrong. <laughs> so part of that, yes, yeah, okay, those companies have to die off. uh, But we, those cultures have to die off. But part of that is also we need to put the right models in place to to pick up the slack and to be successful to to crowd them out of, of the market share of a, the marketplace of ideas. Uh, and again, that's where I think the void is really. F- playing a fundamental role in kind of you know seeking out a space where we can say, yes, that level of that type of being data driven is not a productive path. And that's the wrong kind of capitalism to assume, I guess. But those bureaucratic methods are at odds with other business goals, like system safety, like high availability and resilience and security. Those things are better achieved in a non-bureaucratic environment. And so if the business really wants those, the business has to change.
1: So I I have a couple of thoughts around it, and I'm trying not to be inherently too cynical, but you caught me on that day. But also, as everyone knows, I'm the one who says, I always struggle with the dissonance between believing very strongly in that we can do things so much better with DevOps and cultural change. And also, my belief that people are terrible. That's me. Anyway, but it's, it reminds me a little bit, and I think this where it goes to, is there's the Upton Sinclair quote that says it's difficult to get someone to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. And I'm wondering when, Casey, everything you just talked about and saying this bureaucracy is counter to doing this type of knowledge work, and maybe to me, one of the best examples of how this went, that this was proven out in that you, that bureaucracy is very challenging to get rid of, is SAFE, the scaled mm-hmm. agile framework. What was that? That was, we have a whole bunch of people whose existence is threatened like they don't can't do their job. So it was, how do we back all this stuff that we know how to do and call it agile still? That's safe, right? And that's a oversimplification, but I think that's the, and I know through cultural transformation work and digital transformation work I've done, your challenge usually isn't at the very high levels of executive and it's not at your practitioner level. It's that frozen middle, right? Cause those are the people who tend to in a large bureaucratic, Enterprise are the ones whose entire existence exists because of this thing that you're coming in and saying is of absolute no use. How many people in enterprises, their entire job, if the word MTTR disappeared from this planet, they would have no reason to exist in their current job. That's There are people that have yeah. that role. And that doesn't mean they can't do something else. But I'm just saying, if you sit there, I think that's one of the challenges people have is you can get your CIO and your CTO to maybe buy into these are our business outcomes we're trying to do when your chop wood carry water folks are like, yeah, this MTTR thing is bullshit. But they have a boss who has a boss who is the the support manager, and they have to put together the graphs that show that they exist because they make MTTR go down. So. This is not an, an, a new challenge. This is true of any challenge in a really large organization. So I'm wondering yeah. if we're, how the progress is going along those lines. Sometimes it just takes time.
0: I mean, the interesting thing is that <clears throat> reliability and security are no longer adjacent to the core product, right? Now that literally almost everything is delivered somehow online. <laughs> Those things are central to business concerns, and Southwest Airlines is a perfect example of that um and it's not just because everybody thinks it was their technology that melted down, but it was became clear that their entire way of working melted down when put under the kinds of pressures they had never quite seen before. So um, you're
1: saying in order to have a vaccine for Taylorism, we have to have a Taylorism pandemic, like Southwest, maybe. I, <laughs> the pandemic's already here, man. Yeah, yeah it's already here. It's,
0: uh, but what's interesting is when organizations can get a, leadership levels to actually crack to get that, like Netflix got that in its DNA eventually, right? Like a reliability is a core business thing. And we, we, we tracked track, what, what was like stream. What the hell was the metric,
1: Casey? Like, yeah, stream, stream starts, starts per, per second. Sorry. Y- I'm just yes. really, I talk about that one a lot, so I'm glad that it was right. <laughs> yeah, and
2: it's a great example of, I think, how to win. So one thing that sets Netflix apart there is that every engineer on their, fr- and I'm, I haven't been there in five years, so that this is dated knowledge, but when I was there, on, on your first day as an engineer, you know how to look up that metric how to see it and you see it on dashboards everywhere so the entire company could align around one metric that was correlated to us value right like that number goes up then we don't care what's happening because that's what the business needs to happen and if it goes down then we need to change it that's a it's so much easier but it's to build actually data related driven
0: to the business value
2: yes yeah it's so funny how hard this across- is.
0: Different organizations, right? Like metrics for yeah. Netflix's core business metric is going to be different than Southwest core metric, than PagerDuty <clears throat> core metric. And that's the other thing. Go find the thing. The business.
1: one thing. That's the other thing too. You'll go to places and you'll say, what's your key business metric? And they'll give you 12. And then <laughs> yeah. you're like, they can't all be the key one. And I think it's one thing I find slightly interesting is in my one year of doing public sector work at Red Hat. So one of the things I always ask people in this, I say, hey, do you know how your company makes money? Which is fundamentally asking, what's your key business metric? If you don't go find out, I'll wait. Because if you don't know that, how do you make decisions? And that, that then becomes a conversation about, the stream starts per second, or average cart size at Amazon, or notification delay at pages, knowing all these things. And what was interesting is I had to adjust a lot of my talk track when I was talking to the public sector because they're not about revenue. But what was funny is, so the equivalent in the public sector is what is the mission? What's the mission of the Texas workforce? What's the, And what's funny is in the private sector, so many people you talk to when you ask them how the company makes money, they, they think they know, but they don't, and they're wrong. In the public sector, they all know. They actually know it better than in the privacy. They absolutely know why that agency exists and what the key business metric would be. They're like, our job is to cut checks to people that are unemployed. Are we able to process that? And you go in and they'll be like, oh, how does Netflix make money? Oh, we make money based on, do you really make money based on subscriptions? There,
2: there was a bank in California not too long ago whose slogan was, our first primary priority is customer happiness. It's like, what's your second primary priority? What does that mean? (laughs) 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 That's.
0: Yeah. So I want to get back. I want to do some good bureaucratic terminology. Uh, So I get often asked, okay, what do we replace MTTR with? Right. And this is where you start to understand the mental models and like how ingrained this is. Cause I'm like, okay, I have things that you can replace MTTR with, but you're not going to like it. Cause I'm not going to, the fact that we ever thought we could have one metric that would tell us about the reliability of our systems was the problem. And so now I have to fight you on that plane of existence and then convince you that you can't encapsulate the reliability of your system in a single metric. And so then what you have to do is go figure out what was happening in your systems. And in order to do that, you have to talk to people (laughs) because people are part of your systems, right? All software systems are socio-technical systems, There are people who write the code, who work with the machines, who try to make the machines do what they're supposed to do when they're not doing, and who interact with boatloads of more people than machines on an average basis. And, And that's your system, right? And so when your system stops working, it's just as likely that something wasn't working properly on the socio side of that system than on the technical side of that system, which means you need people who are skilled at... Splunking those kinds of systems and they will be able to get you information and data on what's happening. But that's again to go back to this sort of data driven organization. If you go to the CISO and are like, you need a cultural anthropologist, they're like, ah, ah come on. Not, right. But people are hiring incident analysts. Like that is a thing that is happening. Um, and it's a really interesting and fascinating and, or they're training former SREs or whatever to take on those kinds of roles. Right. And the things that they're doing are fundamentally social science skills, right? It's interviewing it's collecting stories, building narratives, just finding patterns across those social, social events and those kinds of things. And so it, that's what you replace MTTR with. And that's when people start to fight me usually, but it, the organizations that are investing in this, I believe will have a competitive advantage over time. That's going to be harder to prove out. Kind of the Dora argument, right? It was like, if you focus on uh, things like CICD, actually being able to release to production whenever you want and whenever you need, city is not at odds with security or reliability. That's the argument that they actually collected data to make, which is super cool. And I'm... I feel like there's this huge opportunity to make the same argument about investing in incident analysis as a competitive advantage but I think the data for that are uh, they're a little further down the road probably
1: I think it's I think it's tough and just so we're clear like I am not, I'm not even trying to play devil's advocate. I'm just thinking out loud because I, am again, have seen MTTR is junk. But if we're going to try to make that correlation, this is the problem of not having a this is the industry, quote unquote, standardized way of measuring reliability. Because how do I even show that Netflix had did this stuff and it helped their reliability if the way that we help their reliability is all conversational? But if I don't have a, hey, look, this is, they had the same number was better than the one that wasn't. And I think that's the challenge, is you still have to have some way to say, we moved the needle in that way, but what is the shape of that? And I think it gets harder when it's, number one, it's harder when it's not standard because how do you compare? And then even when it's very qualitative, right? It's very editorial. So I don't know. And good thing I don't have to solve this problem and you do. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. And
2: Netflix did try it while I was there. And yes, you know, my sphere of influence was availability stuff, uh, managing the, the traffic team and others. Uh, there, there was a big push to have a quantitative improvement in availability. And one of my favorite things working there was that we had access to the data to show that in our case, going from four nines to five nines of, of uptime, uh, was, uh, was horseshit. Because we had the data to show that uh, people who use the internet don't have five nines of uptime. And most of that is because of Wi-Fi routers and ISPs. So the investment on Netflix's part to make the jump from, at the time, our measurement was four and a half nines to five, would have been completely washed out in... In service of Wi-Fi. So why bother? It's just that there's absolutely no reason to invest in availability from that point of view for that purpose, which was great for me because then we could invest those resources in other more impactful things like regional failover and things that we know would have an impact on uptime and customer experience and availability. Uh, so part of it is, yeah, like the companies that do fixate on MTTR and trying to metric their way towards better availability are going to fail. And the ones that choose other more qualitative methods are just going to do better. Um, So at some point, evolutionary pressure hopefully will put us in a better position, but we don't have to do it dumbly or blindly. We we do have the information to kind of angelize better methods and make the world better on purpose. Not just by accident.
0: (laughs) My favorite example of this, um, Matt, is that David Lay at IBM, he's in the office of the CIO. He gave this amazing talk at DevOps Enterprise. um, We were both there earlier last year in 2022. And he has basically transformed the office of CIO at IBM, like a 12,000 person organization, I might add, to obsessed with incident analysis and what they're getting from it. Um, And his playbook was straight out of DevOps. So he had a Skunk Works team that nobody in upper management knew about that was doing really good, high-quality incident analysis. And everyone who was involved in that loved it, saw the benefits, really appreciated it, and was like... So there was this like little locus of sort of analysis happening. And then they had a really bad incident. And really bad by their context, right? At which point everyone's looking around and staring at each other. And that was his opportunity to go in and say, Hey, can we just try something different? At which point they're probably like, sure. Like that he took, it's not the, I'm not saying this is everyone's playbook, but this was a DevOps playbook for a while too, for various different reasons. Right. And he now has monthly opposite CIO learning from incident reviews and he's tracking how many people come to those meetings, how many repeat people come to those meetings, how many people view the incident reports and how many times those incident reports are used in other things like training, uh, code commits, other kinds of code reviews. He's getting hundreds of people at the office of CIO level to come to these meetings. Um, And so it's like, it's old, like this audience should get this though. It's like old school DevOps from the ground up cultural change, demonstrating the value to the practitioners and then finding an opportunity and striking when the iron is hot, um, and that's. But I, I, this is my favorite case study for that because if somebody can do it at IBM, good gravy! <laughs> like other people should be able to do this. Well,
1: that's and it's interesting because I was just thinking about that, and I think you're right. And I w- it was it made me think about how many stories I have about something transformational and it's always, oh, then Heartbleed happened and we were able to do a thing because we did this. So, you, But it's hard to do it when everything looks great. It goes back to a lot of stuff that was in the Stella report about like when a decision would be made to say, let's shut this off and then nothing happened. And in, re- in retrospect, you've got all the bean counters going, oh, we lost revenue because Casey, you turned off this service and it turned out nothing was wrong. And it's like that hindsight bias is hard. So it's hard to make this when everything looks great to do that. So I think, and I think uh, to Courtney's point, it doesn't mean wait for something bad to happen, but you need to be put, you need to know how to find ways to win. That's my one sports analogy I'll ever make. As you say, when you're looking at professional sports, the skill level between the best player in the league and the worst player in the league is razor thin. The reason that these teams win is they find ways to win. When I think that's a thing for us to do is say, okay, we're doing this, but look for those opportunities to show, and then success begets success, right? You say, okay, we did this thing. It's a lot easier because otherwise it's all theoretical. It's, oh, they did this at Netflix. They did this at – but the one thing I just wanted to mention is you said, hey, if they could do it at IBM, I think there are places that are even harder. And this is me in my living in flyover country Midwestern who's, hey, by the way, there's a whole lot of IT that we – in our space, forget about. And I used to have this argument with Alex at PagerDuty all the time. He was founder, he's my boss. And I would talk to him about ways that people were doing work. He'd be like, no, nobody does that anymore. And I'm like, Alex, yes, they do. And he goes, no, I talk to enterprises all the time. And I say, Alex, you talk to enterprises who A, have even heard of PagerDuty, and then B, decided they want to talk to you. And I used to joke and say my biggest insight into how IT got done is I was a single guy, and I went on dates. And I would go out and I would go on a first date with a woman who was a business analyst at Abbott Labs or something and talking about, hey, what do you do? What do I do? And everything I talked about with DevOps would be there's no way we don't work that way. We actually still do have production support. We still do this. And there's all of this work that we sit and we think about the coasts and we think about either the big finance on the East Coast or whatever nonsense is happening on the West Coast. And then we're like, what about John Deere? What about – and then we're like, oh, but Target. Okay. But for every Target, you have how many Sears, Roebuck, and Company? How many – State Farm? Yeah. <laughs> And it doesn't mean that these enterprises aren't doing interesting things, but like it's a very different shift. And I think we need to keep that stuff in mind. And eventually we get there. But yeah, if you can do it at IBM, that's like half the battle, right? It's the whole, to take the DevOps thing, it's HP LaserJet, right? It's Gary Groover again, right? Okay, you did IBM, it's fine. No one has an but excuse. But my favorite
0: other, if you can do it at story is one of the other things we talk about in the report that we don't really have data for yet, but I'm going to probably keep trying until I retire, um, is data about how unhelpful root cause analysis is and that, that mentality around that. Um, and we don't have the data, so I'm going to tell you a story. Along the way, I read a lot of incident reports like all the time, and I would bash on microsoft azure all the time um, because part still do this so if you're listening uh, folks you drive me crazy because i can't actually point to an, an indexed incident report on your site because it's just a scrolling infinite hell site but anyways uh, so i was kind of, i've been pretty hard on them for a while now and i was going through their stuff to look for an example of one of their root cause analyses to put something in the report And it wasn't there anymore. They had changed the entire format of their incident reports from RCA, which was always like in the title of the report, RCA number, whatever, Azure thing, right? This is the Microsoft Azure team. They flipped over to a PIR because we have to have a abbreviation for everything, which is, but it's a post incident review. And that alone was shocking to me. But then what, what's happening is the quality, the depth, the nature of those reports is in my opinion now one of the more industry like stellar examples of what a public incident report could look like the amount of detail the attention to things not just technical but organizational and that happened in one of the biggest cloud providers right and so again this was a combination of individuals at on the ground level there other people coming in and of course, consulting and doing those things, but they looked around and they realized like this sort of boilerplate. here's the root cause. We swear it'll never happen again. And then something happens again. And then it was not achieving the goals that they wanted to achieve with publishing these types of reports. Um, And so that's another example of even without all the data, there's hope, (laughs) right? We can walk away from old, Short-sighted ways of doing things, even in a very large organization. I think and, it's and provide an example of how other companies can do this.
1: Because, like sometimes, it feels like we're having these pedantic arguments about, and I'm sure you've had it as much as with everybody who's no, it's okay to call it root cause because there's multiple roots in a tree and blah blah blah. And I'm like, okay, if you have to explain to everybody what you mean by it, then it's not serving its point. And so sometimes, just changing the words changes the mindset. And also, I was just thinking when you talked about that change, sometimes it is like you can force a change culturally by making a small thing without asking permission. And the example I think about was so at PagerDuty internally. So by default, PagerDuty's product called it an RCA, called it, you had a field that was called root cause, but in the template, you could call it whatever you wanted. So I remember, uh, One of the PagerDuty SRE who is still there, so I will not shout him out, but his name rhymes, it sounds a lot like Rich Lafferty. Rich would be happy to notice. He actually just, we had a lot of, there were all these conversations about let's stop calling it a root cause in our postmortems. Let's stop all this stuff. And then just one day he's, I just went into the template and changed it and nobody ever said anything. And nobody ever came back and said, you shouldn't do that. And then how many years later, it's not called that. And then we kept trying to push it further and trying to like the product folks to be like, can we change the default in the tool? And that was reaching too far. But that's a place where those of us in the vendor space, you have the ability because honestly, people tend to follow the defaults. And I honestly believe that if PagerDuty changed the format of the postmortem template and took out the word root cause and made the default contributing factors but you could still call it root cause if you wanted that could actually potentially change a lot of how places worked but and fully support small acts of vandalism yeah. change the <laughs> current direction so there's your that's everybody's homework if you use PagerDuty, go sneak in and change your template to say contributing factors instead of root cause see if any number one see if anybody even notices and yell and much less yells at you about it
0: but, yeah. okay we're probably running up yeah, yeah. your time here I will say the other thing that we found that yeah. I just want to throw out as another little bomb is we had the data to look at whether there's any relationship between the duration of an event and the severity of an event, right? So PagerDuty and like other people, like you can, your status pages will say, you know, this was a sub whatever, or it was a major minor, whatever. And we have this longstanding standing belief right that there might be something still about the duration right like maybe that how long it goes on is it worse or do we put everything on the bad ones and they're shorter and the tldr is there's zero relationship between those two factors that we collect about incidents that's that's When one I want people to
1: chew on. I do. I do. We are definitely running out of time, and so I just want to, but we could have a whole other conversation because I'm really interested because I feel like so much of our other the conventional wisdom of DevOps, which I guess we can say now because it's so old that it's now DevOps' conventional wisdom, is a batch size stuff where you're like, okay, instead of having the whole point of that was like, okay, maybe you have more frequent incidents, but they're shorter, so it's better than having this big... Like, since we released once a quarter, now we just broke shit and it was down for three months. Hopefully not three months, but I don't know, some shit is. But I guess maybe it's still, the thing to unpack there is that the answer, the statement is not more frequent releases make for shorter incidents, but they make for lower severity. Maybe. But it's not, But I I just thought it was interesting that I, in my whole way of thinking about it, still went to this, it's ingrained that being down for 30 seconds is fine. But being down for eight hours is terrible. And if I'm teasing apart what you're saying is you're saying that's not necessarily true. That you can have really high severity incidents that are very short and very very low severity incidents that are very long.
0: Or very low severity incidents that are very short.
1: And God forbid very high severity incidents that are very long. But I think we've all been there too. Yes.
0: Yeah. So So severity is more important than
1: duration. No, what that means? They're entirely
0: unrelated. No, they're like okay. They don't tell you anything about what's happening in your systems, right? Oh, calls these but is it
1: impact to your, your availability though? That's in terms of what's wrong. I guess severity. Severity is also isn't I, now here negotiable. We're to, I was just gonna say yeah. it's relative, it's also right?
0: Negotiable. Yeah, sign it differently, and different people within the same organization will use it for different purposes depending on what outcome they want.
1: Yeah, and I guess this is my Or it question. might
0: change over the course of an incident.
1: And my question about that is I've been so many places where severity is defined by duration. That the oh. severity goes up the longer the incident As it is goes running. On.
0: Others which, go the other way. They'll that, call a sub one to get everyone all hands on oh, I- find out what's happening, then they make it a sub three. So which one was it?
1: There's, I was thinking more about like when they're talking about impact. They're like, wait, this has been running for this. If they're tying revenue to the downtime, they're going to say it, it's a it's higher like, severity because it's been running longer. But also, there is the meantime to innocence, which is the it's been running longer, so we better downgrade it so it doesn't look like we had this high severity incident running for so long. So it sounds I, like there's. I, more I also to talk
2: don't about. know of, of any systems at scale where it's even possible to divvy things up like that. Oh, so of for not. example, this yeah, is all made if, up. if, <laughs> but if, if half of if if the western half of Mi- Miami, because of a, a municipal local law, is no longer able to view Netflix at all, so that half of the city is completely unavailable for Netflix. What's the impact on that unavailable on Netflix's overall availability? Is that bad? Th- that, there's just so many different things to take into account to try to factor that out. It just doesn't make sense to assign a severity to that. Let's and that it. scale is going to have that problem. You're going to have some group of users, whether because of an internal issue or an external issue, that isn't able to, uh, to access your system 100% of the time for some period of time. So the whole model's
1: wrong. Just throw it all out. <laughs> throw it all out. Tune in within when we bring Casey and Courtney on a year from now, and they'll tell you what the new model is. But in the meantime, just throw it out, because it's going to take you at least a year just to even get rid of it without something to replace it with. <laughs> Clean house. <laughs> there throw you it go. Out. <laughs> To give you joy, if not... Yeah, there you go. Marie <laughs> Kondo, your oh, your,
0: uh, your Nagios. Uh, systems. Am, I, am I
1: continuing to date myself by
0: talking no, about Nagios? All the Nagios references. I
1: don't even know what you would say now. I don't know what the default thing is, because everybody uses different... Is it Uptime Robot? I always used to say... So this is just just a side note about this. Is one of my favorite things... It was my only thing I enjoyed about Progress buying Chef is that realizing that Progress Software owned What's Up Gold... And What's Up Gold is still one of my I always say, no matter how many cool, big, crazy monitoring solutions you put in place, every good sysadmin still has a copy of What's Up Gold running somewhere on their network just to say, is this thing up? Which isn't true anymore because nobody has servers, but as we continue to date ourselves. That said, this has been awesome. If you head over to ArrestedDevOps.com slash IntoTheVoid, you'll have this episode's show notes, which will have links to things we talked about. If you go to ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes, you can leave us a review in the iTunes store if you want to help other people find the podcast. It hasn't been called the iTunes store in years, but I refuse to update my my spiel or the redirect, so the Apple podcast directory, whatever, but reviews are fun. We haven't looked for one for a while. If it's really great, we might even read it on the show. You can subscribe to you can check us out on Spotify and iHeartRadio, even on Audible, anywhere that fine and less fine podcasts are made available. Thanks so much, Casey and Courtney, for joining me today. This was a lot of fun, and I'm sure we could have talked more and more. This has been arrested DevOps, and remember, there is always DevOps
0: in the banana in stand. the banana
1: stand.